sacrilege in Rome, and RFK's political prospects. In this episode of Church and State, Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara discuss RFK's chances in challenging Biden and facing off against Trump. For more than 150 years preceding Vatican II, the Pope's consistently warned against the dangers of indifferentism and ecumenism. McCall and Ferrara point out that today we are very clearly seeing where these errors lead. Now, a divorced layman dressed in Episcopal vestments and a Bishop Karen officiate a religious ceremony in Rome's cathedral, and a prince of the church rejoices as Protestants usurp a Catholic coronation ceremony. Welcome to another edition of Church and State with Chris Ferrara and Brian McCall. It's good to see you, Chris. It's been a little while since we've been able to get together. Uh, you've just been yeah. lying on the beach, relaxing, I'm sure, doing nothing. Um, that's what you do. You live in Florida. Exactly. Uh, you have a guest appearance today, too. You look behind me, you'll see one of our cats is watching the show. But I thought I would invite her in, you know. She's a little more intelligent than some liberals, so she might as well. Looks like she's bored, though. <laughs> uh, no, I actually was out in the sun in the pool grading my exams. I figure it puts me in a better mood, so the students might be happy about that. Tough life. Really right. tough. Enjoying exactly. the apocalypse. Exactly. Might as well have a front row seat to the apocalypse. Well, anyway, we have some interesting stories. We're going to start on the state side. A development, I'm interested to get your views on what it may mean ultimately, but an interesting development in the 2024 presidential race. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of uh, Robert Kennedy, who was the uh, district attorney who was uh, assassinated, uh, has announced his candidacy for president. Uh, has gone on a real offensive against Biden. And his sort of main talking points that are interesting are, one is to dismantle the deep state. He's publicly now blamed his father's and uncle's death on the CIA. Number two, COVID and vaccines and masks and all this nonsense, dismantling the health totalitarian state. And the third, he's dared to criticize the black hole of money pit of Ukraine. And with that, I want to play a little clip to just get us into then talk about what this might mean from one of the last Tucker Carlson shows. So as you know, Tucker Carlson's been removed, maybe because of this interview. But here is Robert Kennedy Jr. talking about Ukraine. Once the United States government told 30 million people it was cutting their welfare, their food stamp checks by 90 percent. It took it took 15 million people off of Medicare the same month it gave 300 million dollars to the Silicon Valley Bank and tapped up the cost of the Ukraine war to $113 billion. We're sending $113 billion to the Ukraine. The entire budget of EPA is $12 billion. The budget of CDC is $11 billion. We have 57% of American citizens could not put their hands on $1,000 if they have an emergency. A quarter of our citizens are hungry. So we're cutting welfare and food stamps by 90 percent and we're paying and we're bailing out the bankers. We're paying for a war that, you know, we we can't afford. I mean, the guy makes some sense. Everything he says is true. Very tantalizing. The only problem is he carries a lot of baggage with him. The usual leftist positions on abortion, 
and transgender nonsense and all the other social issues. So uh, he might be an interesting third party candidate. I don't think he's going to do that, though. If he did, that would be the end for Biden or whoever they run, because absolutely he would get 10 to 15 percent of the vote if he ran as a third party candidate. Well, that's the interesting thing I'd like to explore with you, because, again, he says he's not doing that, but that's a plausible outcome of this, because the Democratic Party is not going to let this guy get the nomination. (laughs) There's no way. Um, So if he does that, I mean, do you think their calculation might be he would steal votes from Trump supporters and that that could backfire and actually hurt Biden? I mean, what do you what do you think about that? That could be a factor, not with the Trump supporters, which are a a base that is rock solid, but. The independents, he might siphon mm-hmm. off two or three percent of the independents. Mm-hmm. That can be critical. If he loses two or three percent of the independents, I don't see how he can win the next presidential election, which, by the way, it, it seems may be conducted while Trump is under multiple indictments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely fanciful criminal charges. Yeah. Don't want to charge him for a RICO violation because he made a phone call objecting to the outcome of the election in Georgia. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's now well, trying to, uh, to uh, contest elections if the Democrats win. Exactly. And again, it's okay. You know, if the Democrats lose, they can question the fairness of elections all the time. Constantly. Want. It's all yes, they do. It's all they do. But, but anyway, it's, it's interesting. And you're right. Clearly, I should have said that up front. This guy carries, he's not a traditional Catholic. He carries a lot of leftist baggage. But when it comes to the deep state, to these things, I mean, he's, He's like actually willing to speak about the facts, and that seems to be what makes these people scared. I mean, he he went on ABC to talk about his candidacy, and again, constitutionally, this is amazing. Here's a candidate for the president of the United States, and the news media censored what he said about the vaccines doing more harm than good and the mandates accomplishing nothing, and he was censored. I mean, isn't that I mean a clear sort of violation of the whole point of the First Amendment to enable political dialogue? Well, the COVID regime was a test case for the totalitarian state they have in mind, the surveillance state, the health bureaucracy dictating one shutdown after another, part of the Great Reset, the international movement to reset the entire world and put us under a set of oppressive rules that will never bind the elites, you know, rules for thee but not for me. And including the climate change hysteria that's now being promoted in the EU and in the United States as well. So uh, it's all part of the same phenomenon. And to his credit, he identifies the problem. But then what's the solution? Hmm. So I, you know, I, will, I really doubt that he's going to be in a position to eliminate the deep state if he were by some miracle to get elected president. On the other hand, Trump just might be able to do it. Mm-hmm. He's the kind he of guy that, yes. that can get things done. He could call them all into the room at one time as a group and say, you're fired, every mm-hmm. single one of them. Start off with the agency heads. So we'll see. But he's an interesting contradiction to the Democrat narratives. And I think you're right. He has no chance of getting the nomination. I'll bet you, though, that he polls very high and gets a lot of good results in the primaries. You might have I, another I, Sanders steal to <laughs> prevent him from getting the nomination. No, I mean, he's polling 20, 22 percent. I mean, again, which this early against an incumbent president is pretty amazing. So win primaries. I yeah. have no doubt he's going to win primaries. And you're right about, I mean, his inconsistency. I mean, where he sort of lies is he's kind of a classical liberal, which got us into this mess in the first place. Right. He's a classical liberal. So he does go for the transgender, the abortion, because he does, again, at least to his credit, 
seem to be a consistent liberal. Right. He doesn't he believes in these things that lead to those bad things. But that's also why he is condemning the totalitarianism that he sees today. In some ways, he's like a bit like the anomaly of Alan Dershowitz, who's another kind of classical liberal, but who sort of sees the bizarre extra constitutional attack on, a, on an elected president in his defense of Donald Trump in the impeachment hearings. I mean, it's similar in that sense that the classical liberals. He's much preferable to Dershowitz, though, because Dershowitz well, is yeah. all in favor of the COVID regime. So I was on a panel in which I debated the lockdown regime and mm. the mask regime and the vaccination regime, and he was a defender of them. I believe he said he would never shake hands again, and he stayed in his house for a year and a half or two years. So I, I you know, in terms of who was the preferable classical yeah. liberal, it would have to be it would have to be RFK Jr. Yeah, so no, a I lot did. Of, a yeah. lot of courageous things. He does. And I saw actually saw him debate Dershowitz on the vaccine, well, the mandates. They were about to come out. They hadn't come out yet. And then Dershowitz, again, bizarre just for Harvard Law, quoting a very weak Supreme Court case from 1905 about, you know, a $5 fine for a vaccination and, you know, based on 1905 scientific knowledge. And and really, Kennedy Kennedy just destroyed him on that point. You know, the Jacobson case, that precedent that yes. was so much abused early in the pandemic before the decision in the yes. Brooklyn Diocese case, which yes. basically ignored Jacobson. So, yeah, our RFK has a lot of great things to say to the extent that he is a drag on Democrat efforts to nominate another radical pro-abortion nutcase. Yeah. Because I don't think it's going to be Biden. I don't think he's going to make it through the primaries, if you really want to know. I can't <laughs> imagine they're going to run him against any viable Republican candidate. He's already a doddering wreck. How in another year and a half to two years, he'll barely be able to speak a coherent sentence about anything, even the ice cream he likes. Well, I don't know if we need a year or two. I think he's almost there. I think he's there. Yeah. Well, I mean, right, right now, if you give him the cue card, he can read from the cue card. But I think that capacity is going to be gone yeah. in another year. Don't forget, this man had two open brain surgeries for aneurysms. Yes. I'm amazed that he's still alive. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, but we'll see. And maybe he'll actually hold, you know, Kennedy's presence, hold Trump's feet to the fire a little bit on the, the vaccine point on which he's been weak. It occurs to me there's a factor here that may actually sweep RFK to the nomination, which is the growing scandal over the Biden crime family. <laughs> money coming in from China, money coming in from Romania, money coming in from Ukraine and then being distributed through a whole layer after layer of of LLCs and landing Mm. in the laps of various Biden relatives, including grandkids. I mean, that's a blatant money laundering scheme in return for no services whatsoever other than providing access to influence. That scandal is not going to go away. And RFK will exploit it if he has any sense of the path to victory for him. Yes. If that scandal blows up into something even larger than it already is so that even the legacy media can't deny it, then RFK has got a real shot at getting the nomination, I would think. Yeah, no, it's RFK versus Trump. That would be a horse race. It would be interesting. It'd be very interesting. I think RFK would win a presidential race against Trump. Hmm. Maybe. But it's interesting what you say about the Biden crime family. I mean, it really, even the, the mainstream news media who were willing to spout such nonsense to try to make it go away three years ago, they're even having a hard time with their pay no attention to the money behind the curtain. I mean, yeah. it, it's getting almost, you know, too obvious for them. 
I know the most they're doing now is trying to distract with other other news. But uh, we're no, there's a massive money laundering operation going on. Why else do you set up uh, multiple layers of LLCs and distribute money to different family members who perform yes. no services? If that were happening in the Trump family, Trump would be in an orange jumpsuit already. He'd be serving time. Yes. Well, from uh, again, we'll keep to an eye on this because again, I think you're right. Politically, this has a lot of different ways it can go. Uh, Trump J RFK matchup, RFK versus Biden, third party. It, it we'll have to keep our eye on this to see what happens. But in terms of uh, you know further hypocrisy and contradiction, we're going to turn to the church, which uh, talk about a couple things. Uh, you know, we talk a lot about Vatican II, and one of the ways from a historical perspective, I think. Uh, to explain what happened in Vatican II, for at least a lot of the normal, just sort of run-of-the-mill bishops, not the crazy Rhine bishops who were modernists, but a lot of the ones that sort of went along, I think was the proposition, because you have to remember, they're just coming off communism, persecution. We had the Cardinal Medinsky and being persecuted. And I think the thing was put to them, look, we can strike a deal. If we just tone some things down a little bit, make them a little ambiguous, stop being so in the face of the modern world, We'll get accepted. The church will be accepted. They'll leave us alone. We'll buy a little space. And I, again, I don't think it was put in these explicit terms, but as I've come to understand it, I think a lot of bishops sort of held their nose at one of these points and thought, you know what? We're going to buy some acceptability. And again, that deal with the devil, I think, as the consequences we're seeing have come forward. So with that preface, I want to show one of the scandals that Vatican II led to just a couple of weeks ago in Rome, a bunch of lay men and women dressed up in bishop's clothes, uh, and that's not me, that's Leo XIII, definitively declared there are no Anglican orders, were given use of St. John Lateran, the Pope's basilica, to perform a, quote, Anglican mass, they were calling it, which is, again, because they have no orders, a mockery of confecting the sacrament. Uh, it's lay people dressed up. Uh, here, again, is this Bishop Fulham, who claims to have been consecrated by the Archlayman of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, and he was there with a bunch of other people, including uh, this lady, Bishop Sarah Mullally, Malarkey, excuse me, of uh, London, <laughs> Reverend Karen. And this is in Rome, in uh, St. John Lateran. There he is, Karen a Crozier, dressed up like a bishop. This is sort of where ecumenism leads. <laughs> well, it leads to, as Pius XI warned in Motelium Animos, ultimately to the abandonment entirely of revealed religion as such. The first step is the ecumenical outreach to Protestants, and then it's the interreligious ecumenical initiatives, which place the church on an equal footing with any and all religions, so that, as he warned, revealed religion itself is abandoned. And so now we have these ecumenical ceremonies. This is probably relatively conservative by right. <laughs> modern standards, as compared to the Pacamama event. At least they're all wearing clerical garb and they kind of look Christian. Yeah, at least I mentioned the name of Christ, probably, in their, <laughs> their prayers. Yeah, in, in a blasphemous manner, because the whole ceremony yes. is a joke. And, the, and, you know, there is a complication here, though, because after Leo infallibly pronounced on the invalidity of Anglican orders, at least some Anglican bishops had themselves reconsecrated by Eastern Orthodox yes. bishops. So now it may be possible to trace the lineage of some of these bishops to the apostolic succession, albeit via a schismatic Eastern bishop. But 
that, that said, we have no idea which of these bishops might be able to claim some insertion into the apostolic succession. The lady well, bishop is just a joke. Well, yeah, well, that's a joke. But although even those that did that in the early uh, 20th century, late 19th, they then went on to use the Anglican ritual to right. consecrate. So I think they, there might have been a one or two kind of inserted, if again, if. But I think it would have died with them because they don't, as far as I know, they're not sending people to, to Orthodox now. Although, something we'll talk about in a minute, the coronation of the king of Protestant Freemasonic king of England, uh, they used olive oil in the anointing of the king, but they didn't bless it themselves. They got another Orthodox, they got an Orthodox, again, schismatic, but valid order patriarch of Jerusalem to consecrate the oil for them, which is kind of hilarious that they're like kind of really uh, sort of admitting, well, we don't actually really have any power to bless anything. There were officials in clerical costumes. Yes. State officials wearing clerical costumes. I mean, Bishop Karen, really? Yeah. And the Vatican is presenting this as a serious version of Christianity when it's obviously a diabolical joke, a lady yes. in a bishop's costume. So yeah. what can one say? I mean, this is where ecumenism leads. It leads to these ceremonies in St. John Lateran, which would have any pope before the Second Vatican Council reduced to a state of apoplexy. Yes. If you witness such a thing. But now it's, um, yeah, it's par for the course. And this is the trajectory of the Second Vatican Council with its opening to the world. And it, as Cardinal Ratzinger explained, this was the immediate post-war period. Mm-hmm. You know, World, yes. World War II had ended about 15, 16 years earlier. And the council says Ratzinger was pervaded by the optimism of the Kennedy era. Well, why would a council be pervaded by the optimism? Right. <laughs> of a political state of affairs. What does that have yes. to do with a council? Well, the reason it has a lot to do with this council is that, as the council itself proclaimed, as Paul VI insisted, this was really not about affirming doctrines and dogmas, defending them against errors and denouncing those errors with anathemas. This was a totally unique council in the history of the church, an opening to the modern world, an attempt to present the church's teaching in an attractive way and in ways that modern man could understand. And I think in a previous episode, we discussed how that was an immediate disaster, mm. such that with dissent sprouting everywhere, Paul VI, reduced to desperation, had to have a cradle of the people of God composed, reaffirming the most elemental teachings of the church, which was read on the radio to remind people that the church still teaches certain things infallibly and irrevocably. So the the idea that the world would accept Catholic teaching if it were expressed in some prolix document, such as Gaudium et Spes, which reads like a bad term paper from a college freshman, <laughs> that idea proved to be a complete failure. This is not the church's specialty, writing sociology papers, making comments on social media, the, the rise of the social media, the state of uh, politics, the rise of democratic regimes, opinions about this, that, or the other thing in the realm of the political or the anthropological, and it shows in, in the Vatican documents. So what you had with the council, which we're seeing the fruits of today, was not really a presentation of doctrine as opposed to what they call a new orientation. The church has had a new orientation. No longer the fortress church. But now a church open to the world. And, of course, when you let the ramparts down and you throw the uh, bridge across the moats, the world marches right in and takes over. And that's exactly what happened. 
We all remember Paul VI's famous quote that the opening to the world has become a veritable invasion of the church by worldly thinking. We have perhaps been too weak and imprudent. You think? (laughs) Related to that, and get back to the way I introduced this story, I want to play a clip now of Cardinal Nichols, who is the highest-ranking prelate in the United Kingdom. He is the Cardinal Archbishop of Westminster, who was invited to participate in the consecration. So let's listen to him gush about this. I have childhood memories of 1953. 53 is when Queen Elizabeth was coronated. And, of course, at that time, as a Catholic, I was not allowed to even to enter a non-Catholic church. So now... I'll take an active part in the ceremony, and that would be new for 400 years. I mean, it's maybe worth remembering that for for the 500 years before the Reformation, this was a Catholic ceremony. Uh, So we've had a 400-year gap, and as a fruit of all sorts of things, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury and I often meet, we talk together, and we'll stand together for this coronation ceremony. What a perfect schoolie <laughs> yes. of the modern mentality ushered in by the council. Has no conception of why in 1953 Catholics were indeed forbidden to enter a non-Catholic church. It's because of what we see today. The danger yes. of and the encroachment of total indifferentism on the part of the faithful. If you go into a Protestant church and you sit there as if it were a legitimate church and let that soak in, you begin to think, well, what's the real difference between the Catholic church the only church founded by God incarnate, and all these other churches. I mean, they certainly look like churches. The officials who run them have clerical garb on, so what's the big deal? We're all just part of the same Christian family, even though the church that Nichols was gushing over is the result of a schism introduced by a king who wanted multiple wives and died of syphilis. That's the founder of their religion. Well, and really what's interesting about what he says, again, this is, I'm saying, this is the Vatican II. Look, guys, we played ball, and now I get to go. And look how sneaky he is. He sort of says, this used to be a Catholic ceremony. He's absolutely right. It was, and all the way up until the 16th century. And then it stopped, and now he's acting like it's a Catholic ceremony again when he read one sentence of an ecumenical prayer read by all Protestant uh, leaders and himself. I mean, the moment, if you saw the video, it's worthy of John Paul II and of Sisi. He's standing there amid these Protestant ministers, the Archlayman of Canterbury. They each take one line of the prayer, ended, not even by him, but by the Archbishop of Canterbury, just places a cardinal of the Catholic Church on the same level as laymen dressed up in, as you said, in clerical garb. And this is what he's saying. This is what Vatican II bought us. Isn't this great? I get to be on international television at the coronation again for a fleeting second. I forget who it was who said this. Was it Lenin or Stalin? About the useful idiots. (laughs) uh, The capitalists will sell you the rope with which to hang them. That's... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the useful idiots of the ecumenical movement will sell the church the rope, sell the other side of the ecumenical travesty, the rope with which to hang Catholicism. And he talks about the 1953 and all decades preceding as if the church had been unreasonable and unnecessarily punitive, when actually it was a very wise prescription. And in fact, in the 1920s, in Mortalian Animos, Pius XI forbade Catholic participation in the ecumenical movement 
precisely because of the danger that it would result in exactly what we see now. Cardinal Nichols participating in an Anglican ceremony conducted by fake clerics as if this were some great breakthrough in ecumenical relations, when all he's really doing is surrendering the claims of the Catholic Church to be the one and only divinely founded ecclesiastical institution. And that's the goal of of the ecumenical movement in general, to unseat the church from her rightful place as the one and only divinely founded church, and to place her alongside all other religions on equal footing, even with non-Christian religions, even with pagan cults, as we saw in the Pacamama travesty. And this is exactly what Pius XI predicted, the abandonment of revealed religion, if we allow ourselves to enter into this ecumenical movement. Exactly. And again, my thoughts in watching this were, if you ever seen the movie Man for All Seasons, one of the great scenes is when Richard Rich, who commits perjury to come up with false evidence against Thomas More, commits his perjury. Thomas More says, oh, I have one last question. And he says, what's that chain of office you got? Pointing out, he, this is what he got for lying. And he says, oh, whales. And he says, basically paraphrasing, you, you perjured yourself, lost your immortal soul for whales? <laughs> for whales? Yeah, the way he put it is, our Lord said, what does it profit a man? That's a bad, yes. Gains the whole world, but loses his soul. But for whales? But for whales? You know, that might even be, you know, the trial transcript is actually available from that trial. It is, yes. I should go check and see if that actual exchange is in there. I think it might well be. I think, because I did look at this years ago, several bits of the trial in play in the film are lifted from it, and I think that that is actually one. But again, well, look now, at, we have a to- now we have the total betrayal yes. of the church's mission in exchange for the approval of our dialogue partners in ecumenism. Again, we document this with every episode. Yes. We're looking at the final stages a form of ecclesiastical rabies in the human element of the church, paroxysms of destructive innovation. As the Novus Ordo sputters to its demise, and its well-deserved demise, and this is what Francis, of course, is trying to prevent by locking down the Latin mass communities because that's the future mm-hmm. of the church, let's face it. Mm-hmm. So this thing will run its course. There will be a restoration sooner or later because this madness can't go on much longer. And the same, unfortunately, has to be said for a civilization that is rapidly decomposing in front of us. So in the midst of all this disaster, there is hope. And that's what Our Lady of Good Success said. When all seems lost, that will be the beginning of the Great Restoration. It has to happen. Yes. Well, and it's very true. It has to get, because people say, why does it have to get this bad? And our Lord is doing it so that there's no doubt that the restoration is through the intercession of the Blessed Mother. There's no natural explanation for it. It has to be so bad that it's the only explanation is a divine intervention. And uh, clearly we're reaching that point, (laughs) that inflection point. Well, it looks like we've covered church and state once again, and the news once again is not good. (laughs) To sum up the last 25 minutes, exactly. Well, great. Wonderful. Well, thank you all for listening. We're sorry it's been a little while since we were able to get together, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to see you in another couple of weeks to talk about uh, the ever-decomposing church and state. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, take care. Church and State with Brian McCall and Christopher Ferrara is brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2023, 
all rights reserved. The message of Fatima is the solution for our time. Only she can help us. It is therefore urgent that we live according to Our Lady's message and share it with everyone we know. For more resources and to support this vital apostolate with your donation, visit our website, Fatima.org, or call us at 1-800-263-8160. Our Lady of the Rosary, pray for us, and long live Christ the King.